Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. So DuPont says, well, you know, we don't have any sense of morality. We're going to continue doing it. So they not only continue using it, they build, they build a new plant. The new plant, whole new plant is they spend $25 million building a new plant so they can make their own toxic poison. Only in America, brother. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. As always, I am your host, Steve Lowry, here with uh, Vaughn Godfrey. Uh, Vaughn, how are you doing today? I am good. I've had um, an unreasonable amount of coffee, and I don't, I don't <laughs> think that's why I'm so excited for today's show, but I'm extra excited. I think this is a very exciting show because the, this, the, the case that we're going to talk about and the work that we're going to talk about is fascinating. And I was thinking about it, you know, last week we did the talc uh, case, uh, you know, that was the uh, um, Mark Lanier and Rachel Lanier's tremendous verdict in that case. And I was thinking about how we talked about, you know, the things that we don't know what talc is in and what uh, can actually, you know, hurt you. And I think we're following up on that things, uh, you know, things that you never knew could kill you. And, uh, and that's, that's what I think one of our themes from today. I, I agree, and, and I know we're going to get into it, but also just the sorts of things that people, um, that people do know will kill you, but don't tell you. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So, um, <laughs> and spend lots of time and money covering up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, um, let me introduce our, uh, our, our guests today. We, have, uh, we are so happy to have on our guests. And, and I just should say, if we, if we do put this up on the website, uh, Mike Papantonio looks fantastic. Uh, he's got a great <laughs> background. He's, he looks way better than, uh, than, than me, definitely. Um, so, uh, Mike, we are so happy to have you on. Well, thank you for your invitation. And, and, you know, thank you for doing these kinds of programs. I can't tell you how important it is because just as you were talking about before, uh, before I started talking is that most of these stories, people don't know anything about, and that's because of the failure of, of corporate media. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're at the heart of the problem because they're basically owned and operated by advertisers. And the old days of having media tell us these stories are just about gone. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is that is the problem when you uh, want to talk about a corporation that's doing something uh, wrong. And in this in, in this case specifically, uh, I won't drag it out too much longer, it really makes you think about how, you know, if any one person did the kind of things that this corporation would do. Uh, did you know they would receive the death penalty and then of mm. course this corporation mm. uh, goes on spins off and you know comes up with a new corporation and continues uh hurting people yeah. um but mike let me talk a little bit about you just for any of our listeners who don't know you and i'd be surprised if there are any but um uh mike papantonio is a fantastic trial lawyer uh practicing down in pensacola florida and really all over the country um, the name of his law firm is Levin Papantonio Thomas Mitchell Rafferty and Proctor. And you can look up Mike at levinlaw.com. Um, and then, Mike, I just want to tell some of your background. Uh, Mike has been named to the Trial Lawyer Hall of Fame. Uh, he was the past president of the National Trial Lawyers Association. He was awarded the Compassionate Gladiator Award from the Florida Justice Association, uh, won the special litigation category for elite trial lawyers. Uh, also won the Perry Nichols Award from the Florida Just Justice Association. And, um, you know, what I think is just fantastic is not only, uh, Mike, are you, uh, uh, you know, a successful, busy trial lawyer, but you also uh, host a TV show, America's Lawyer. You host a radio show, Ring of Fire. Uh, you started uh, the wildly popular Mass Torts Made Perfect, uh, which helps lawyers all over the country know how to do these uh, cases against, you know, really big, uh, difficult corporations to take on. And in your, me in your spare time, uh, you wrote nine books, from what I can tell. You've been in four films or documentaries. I mean, so, uh, so it doesn't sound like you have much going on, Mike. <laughs> well, you know, let me respond by this and, and tell you, th thank you. I'm going to call you every day, right. anytime I need a pep talk. And, uh, right, right. Be, so, but, but let me tell you this, uh, let me, let me come, let me come back at you. Okay. We, we've got to start believing as, as obviously you do believe that we have to do more than just walk into a courtroom and try a case if we want to change, if we want to change anything, right? Uh, you know, yeah. we don't change culture and we don't change society by just one 
trial at a time. It's, it's unfortunate, but that trial has a media life of about 24 hours. What you're doing with this podcast is you're telling a story that can be told again and again. And younger lawyers that come up through the system understand, yeah, these are, these are legacy issues. This is not 1-800-been-involved-in-an-automobile crash. And those are important cases. Don't get me wrong. Very important. They take care of a, a person one at a time. But what you're doing is you're talking about what, what, what me, corporate media won't do. And that's to say, there's some really bad people in this right. world. There's some really bad <laughs> folks running corporations. And media which is corporate, won't tell the story. And so what you're doing is just, it's incredibly valuable. And I, I really do mean that. I, I just can't, I can't give enough props to say, uh, nice job. Well, I, I, we definitely appreciate that. And we, uh, you know, I mean, part of the reason we, I mean, we obviously love what we do. We love helping people. We love doing, uh, you know, trial work. Um, but I mean, also, you know, part of the reason selfishly why I do this is because I get to talk to people like you and, uh, yeah, and, uh, and hear your, uh, hear your uh, strategies and thoughts on, uh, on how you approach a case. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this case, and then we'll get into the details of it. But uh, this uh, involves essentially the MDL of the of DuPont, um, and I'm going to try and say the name of this uh, of this chemical, uh, perfluorooctanic acid (PFOA), better known as C8, better yeah. known as the stuff that you put that it makes Teflon uh, that is in all of these Teflon pans. And what I learned, because and what I should tell all of our listeners is that. Uh, there is a fabulous documentary on this case and on this work uh, called The Devil We Know. You can watch it on Netflix. Uh, I watched that. And one of the things, uh, Yvonne, that I learned as we were, um, as I was watching, watching it is that, so Teflon, you know, you think of it in being in the pans and you cook with it. And obviously uh, that, you know, can cause some contamination, but it's also in dental floss. Scotchgard, Gore-Tex, it's in fast food wrappers, it's in pizza boxes, it's all over the place. And I think some of the things that we'll talk about on this is just really how prevalent uh, this chemical is uh, everywhere. And in mm -hmm. um, this case, it, 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 from what I saw, Mike, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I saw three trials, and there might have been more, uh, that were tried as, uh, as bellwether trials, the Freeman versus DuPont case, the Bartlett versus DuPont case, and the uh, Vigneron versus DuPont case. The uh, Freeman versus DuPont was a $5.1 million verdict with $500,000 in punitives for um, a gentleman that suffered from testicular cancer caused by uh, PFOA C8. Uh, Bartlett was a $1.6 million verdict uh, involving uh, kidney cancer. And then uh, Vigneron was also a cancer case, and it was a $2 million verdict with uh, $10.5 million in punitives awarded. And then I think it was after those cases, uh, basically a global settlement was reached for approximately $920 million with DuPont uh, for essentially discharging uh, this chemical directly into the Ohio River and contaminating a number of communities around the area, um, including six water districts um, that uh, uh, just caused all kinds of problems. And it had been going on uh, since the 50s. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing out of all. The, by the way, there was a fourth case that was being tried and uh, they knew they were getting ready to be poured out. It was, um, you know, it was. The jury was headed towards 25 or 30 million dollars. The, right. the insurance folks were there. They saw what was happening and that helped shut things down. But out of all those verdicts, probably the, the least of those verdicts, the Bartlett case was the most important because just like a lot of corporate types, these folks thought that they were bulletproof. Uh, they, it was amazing. The uh, the arrogance with which they approached this whole case. It was from, from word go, you know, the great thing about that, I, I love this case in that there was a young lawyer that, that was asked to take a look at the fact that a farmer had some cows dying. Okay. 
and so he was working for he was working for a uh, uh, for a defense firm, one of the largest defense firm, most effective defense firms in the country, Taft, up in Ohio. And oh, by the way, the movie about him is coming out this year. Oh, awesome! Uh, yeah, it's Mark Garofalo is playing his role, and I just I can't. It's just such an important story. So, so years before I got involved, uh, he, you know, he wasn't a trial lawyer. This is just wasn't a specialty, but he was a really good, he was a really good um, technician. He, he understood how to get documents. He understood how to probably uh, anticipate where the cover up was. And he, he came at that from his only training was his defense lawyer. So I guess he kind of saw the other side of it and he applied what he learned as a defense lawyer to this case. And he was kind of working alone. I mean, the guy was like in a bubble. I think they were going to fire him several times when they said, what are you doing <laughs> right. working on this plaintiff's case? He's we not getting his hourlies up. Exactly. You're not getting your hours up. And, you know, we, we work, uh, we work to defend these kind of creeps. And so anyway, he, he just kind of hung in there. And then the first time he came to me, I, I was involved in a, I was involved in a, a, a big project. I think it was all the way back to the, maybe the Yaz days, you know, where that was a pill that was killing people, uh, killing women from DVTs. Bayer Corporation made that pill. And he came to me and he said, look, I've got, <laughs> I've got all of this stuff. And, I, and he had seen me try a case in, in Spelter, West Virginia, maybe the year before, two years before. And we got a $385 million verdict in that case. It was a toxic injury case. And so he said, I watched the whole trial. And he said, I understand that what, what I do is different from what you do. And I said, great, you know, Robert, that's how, that's how lawsuits are built. You know, they're the people that are the, the stat, they're the technicians. They, they know how to go after the important information. And then there are people that put all that together and present it to a, to a jury. And, but I said, you're not far enough along. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so, so he says, well, let me get busy some more. So he goes, comes back two years later and he's got this case. At least he has the makings of a really good case. And so we, we put it together and we say, well, you know, let's go see how it tries. And the arrogance of, of the folks was just almost, um, you know, it was almost palpable. But they, they, it's interesting. And, and, and what makes it so interesting is sometimes these corporations get such bad advice. They'll have a six stock, you know, a silk stocking lawyer there in a, you know, Armani suit and a Rolex watch and member of the country club. And, you know, they, they all they know is one way. They don't, they, they, they don't, they're not even connected to the rest of the world. So we got it. We got a whole gaggle of those guys. And so the first, uh, the first uh, 20 depositions were just a bloodbath because I don't know whether you've talked about uh, this before. Maybe you talked about it with Mark Lanier. He, he and I are good friends and we have the same approach. Uh, but the, there's a notion of what they call the attack deposition. And it's a very unique way that you go after a complex case. It, the, the, the idea is that the deposition is where the trial starts. Right. There is no, let's, there are no questions in our depositions. Now, where'd you go to school? You know, who'd you marry? What's your dog's name? A lot of this garbage that you see in lawyers that don't understand really how you have to, you have to start winning your case in the first deposition. So we, we, we have that strategy all the way back to the asbestos days. Ron Motley, I don't know if you know, have you ever heard of Ron, but Ron was a spectacular asbestos lawyer. Defendants that we had to go to trial against. And so what you had to do is you had to take them out quickly and you had to take them out efficiently because that deposition was going to be used again and again. And you never wanted to give them the idea of how to rehabilitate. Okay. Right. So the notion of these depositions is that you go in with an attack very early. You, there's no delay. You first, what you typically do is you set somebody low down on the food who should have, who has the right to answer. Did you see this? Or who has the right to say, you know, this is, this, is this consistent with the way that you remember your program being run? We don't really care about what they're saying as much as we care about that document. You might have, you talked about the devil we know. In the devil we know, you see that pattern. I'm not really asking questions. What I'm doing is I'm showing them a document and I'm attacking the document and I'm going through, typically you want to have your case built before that first deposition to where you've gone through at least 50 documents. 
The reason for that is, is because the defense lawyer shows up and most of the time early on in a big case, believe it or not, they'll send, um, they'll send associates, they'll send low end partners who, who are there to protect the witness. Well, you right. know, Okay, what does that mean? Protect the witness. They're there because they don't, you know, because they've been asked to cover depot. (laughs) They don't know the documents. They've never reviewed the documents. And so there's no way for them to rehab the witness. You see, you've gone through 50 documents. You're, what you're doing is using those documents as pictures because that's how jurors remember things. They, they see a picture. They see that document five times in a trial. And all of a sudden, that creates the theme of the trial. And you've got your theme created in the first three depots because typically you're going to have a, like a low-end lawyer that so much is coming at them so quickly. There's a, there's a document on the screen. It's being highlighted as the question's being asked. You've given them a, a blank copy that they're trying to read and figure out what in the world just happened. Right. And so it's virtually impossible to rehabilitate that witness. So because of that, the rehabilitation is 15, 20 minutes most of the time. So now what do you have? Now you have at least three of these depots in a can. You follow me? So when you open your case, what you're doing is you're taking the themes away. You're taking your themes and you're selling your themes unencumbered. You're not showing three depots back to back. You're starting off with your opening statement. Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see this story told through the documents. You're selling them on the idea of the importance of the documents. It becomes a document case. Remember this document. Remember this document. So as the case develops, the first thing after opening that they start seeing is a packaged depot yeah. with, say, 25 of the documents. The defense lawyer is sitting there and they can't really do anything about it. You see, it's been ruled on. There's, there's, you know, all the preliminary rulings have taken place. So you're moving the case through those documents, opening, first witness, cross-examination. As you, you know, in these cases, you want to move to cross as soon as you can because that's where you control the trial. So what you, you try to get the directed verdict as soon as you can. You introduce as many killer documents as you can. If you got 50 of them, you focus on 50 again and again and again. Um, there's a great book, if you get a chance to, 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 to look at it, it's called Moonwalking with Einstein. That book talks about how people remember things. And the way they remember things is, is it's, not a na- it's not a knack. You might think somebody just has this incredible ability to remember. There may be some of that that's true, but people remember things by, by, by pictures. For example, if I put up on a wall 50 words and I said, come back tomorrow, see how many words you remember, you would remember less than, less than 30%. If I put pictures, lion, I show you a picture of lion. If I say dog, show you a picture of dog, that goes up close to 60% the next day. Documents are the same thing, okay? The way the document comes in is what you're selling the, you're, you're selling the jury from top to bottom to where if everything goes well, when the trial's over, uh, the bailiff ought to be able to report to you that your documents are stacked up in the middle of the, of, of, right. of the table, and that was driving the deliberation and trial. So because of a complex case like the one you're talking about, the, the C8 case was very complex and continues to be. Uh, it's just really started. The litigation in this has just really begun. The, the, the need to, to really bring it all together and, and say, how am I going to tell the story? Why should I make the story up? Why should I try to fashion the story with anything except what came out of their file cabinets? And so that's, that's typically my MO on every case. But in this case, it was particularly important. And, and it, it, it worked. I can tell you it worked. And it usually does work. You know. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. 
They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. Oh man! Well, I got to say, I love the uh, I love the idea of attack deposition and getting right to the point. And I I, I do try to do that, you know. And and sometimes you want to be, uh, you know, polite and ask a few uh, initial questions, but you, you do try to get right to the point because most of the time, what you find is is they're just not prepared for you to get you know right into the meat of it and to go right after it. And like you said, they don't always send uh, the partners to. Um, uh, to uh, prepare them that way. Um, and I should mention the, the, I think the lawyer you're talking about who sort of built this case, uh, or at the beginning was, is that Rob Billet? Rob, Rob, Rob Billot. Yes. Oh, yes. Rob Billot is extraordinarily dedicated. lawyer. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so glad they're making this movie. He, um, he turned out a book. Uh, I, I don't know the name of it, but, um, I think it's maybe coming out could be this week, either this week or next week about the case. And, and 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 then the movie comes out. I think uh, maybe in several months. Yeah, yeah. Well, talk talk a little bit about. I mean, because you know, in this case, uh, you know, I mean, finding the documents is really everything. You know, especially when you're going after a big uh, a big company. Um, and you know, if you if you, I mean we try to exactly like you were saying, we try to just, you know, have our stack of documents, our crosses are held tightly to the documents. And really what you're trying is, is those documents and you just want to put them up one after another. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, but, you know, talk to our listeners a little bit about how you go about finding those documents, finding those needles in a haystack in a, in a case, which can, you know, some of the evidence in this case involving C8 went back to the 1950s. Um, you know, I'm sure there were millions of documents. Yeah, there were. Uh, well, there are services, of course, there's various services. But at the end of the day, you have to take the time. And, um, and this is very difficult. Uh, this is the real test to me um, on the ability to focus and say, I've got to read this. I don't want to read it off a screen. You got to have the doc. To me, this is how I, I've got to get it in my head. I've got to have the doc in my hand. I have to. I have to read it. I have to then highlight it, and then I have to have the paralegal that's working on the case or the associate working on the case. You have to. You have to take every document as if it could mean the difference in the case. So what we do is I. I, I do the reviews. Uh, we have, you know, artificial intelligence systems that do the yeah. first look at it. We do the inquiry through artificial intelligence inquiries. But then when we get it, you can't have paralegals really making the last decision. You have to handle the documents and you just have to hold up in a room for two weeks at a time. And there are 12, there are 12 15 hour days where you're reading documents. But then what's important, here's is extremely important. When the, the document then has to be themed, okay? When, when I walk into a deposition or a trial, I don't really have papers with me. I don't even have a briefcase. I have one thing that's a, it's a, it's a, about uh, maybe three by two feet, and it's a, it's a big, what we call a theme grid. And the theme grid sits down on the table in front of me. Most of the time it's laminated, but it has all of the themes of the key documents that I want to move around, okay? And I do that when we take a deposition. I, if, if, if I'm not ready for that, if I don't have that by the time the deposition ta- is, is time, I don't do the depo. I wait till the theme grid is pretty far along. And so what the theme grid enables you to do is it becomes, it, it allows you to be more dynamic. You're not, you're, you're moving with the witness. The witness wants to talk about duty. Well, you move to duty. The witness wants to talk about, uh, you know, PR, you move to PR, whatever it is. You have it in front of you and you're, you're checking off the documents as you go. All right. In trial, that same, you, the very thing that I'm describing right here, when I walk into a trial, that's all I have. And if I'm doing an examination of the witness, of course, I'll have, you know, what I want to do conceptually. 
But when I'm on cross-examination, as I'm listening to the cross, he's saying A, and I'm checking A is something I want to cross on. That's a document. So when I stand up, what I have in front of me is I have 20 documents that I've checked off and as, as cross-examination has taken place, and I simply do the attack through those, do, through those uh, documents. What happens so often is lawyers get so bogged down with too much stuff when they walk into a deposition, when they walk into trial. So what I have is I've got my theme grid, I've got a, a very, very capable, uh, care, all, all our paralegals know this system. And then of course, I've got the fellow working the technology put up document 32, it shows up on the screen. Sir, let me ask you about paragraph number one. So then paragraph number one's highlighted. Let me ask you about paragraph number seven. Paragraph number seven's highlighted and they're moving through the document that methodically. And so what you're also doing is you're moving through the document. You're asking, the, the document becomes a picture. Remember, we talked about uh, the idea of recognition mm -hmm. of pictures. The document is actually a picture. And when you talk about document 32, the, the jury has a sense of what 32 looks like. Oh yeah, it's the one with the big red circle in the right-hand corner or the big check mark on the bottom left-hand corner. That's document 32 to them. So what you're doing is you're, you're so as, to get to your question, as you're going through reviewing documents, which you have to do, you gotta do it mm -hmm. yourself. Oh yeah. What you're actually doing is you're saying, okay, let me see what this document's gonna look like. Does it, is it something they're gonna remember? Then that document is put into a, a, a manila folder, right? And the, the front of the manila folder, you have paragraph A, right? And then out to the paragraph A, it'll give you the line that you wanna go to. Now think of the dynamics of this, or B, it'll give you the paragraph you wanna to go to, and that'll be highlighted on the document. So here's what's happening. You're handing that document to the defense lawyer in deposition. It's blank. I mean, it's, you know, there are no markings on it. Right. You've got your, you're holding on to your envelope. You're holding on to your, your manila, manila envelope with all, everything marked. I mean, it's just pap, go here, pap, go there, pap, go there. And then you're, you're, driving, the, you're driving the examination with that document, the witness doesn't know what in the world the bejesus is going on. I mean, he's looking at—he's <laughs> looking at a—he's looking at a screen. You're saying, "Look, don't 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 worry about that document in front of you. Why don't we look at the screen? It's easier to use." You're trying to get their direction to the screen, and you're controlling that off of the screen with your highlights. The defense lawyer is sitting there reading, "What in the world is this?" Because there's no way they can go through a million documents, right? Right, right, right. But but you have. <laughs> so you're showing up in the first depot with that. And so that first, so, so how do you review them was your question. Yeah. You review them with the idea of I'm looking for 50. I'm looking yeah. for 50 for the first depot. I'm looking for 50 for the next depot. So it's all, it's all choreographed around documents drive damages. Okay. Yeah. Documents drive damages. That's, that's just the simple truth. I mean, think about it in the early asbestos days, we were getting $4 million four million dollar verdicts on a plural plaque case why because the conduct of the corporation was so reprehensible i mean you had i mean you know john's manville writing these guys make a good living with asbestos they can <laughs> right. die with asbestos i mean how do you get away oh, from that you know? yeah yeah right well and, and speaking of talking about the documents specifically in this case and there's a there's a great timeline on your um on your website that kind of sets out a lot of the things that were being said yes. um by by the corporation, but can you, for our listeners, kind of give an overview? I know it's hard because you had a lot of documents of of the kinds of things that you were seeing in these documents, these internal documents. Because the, I I was really shocked to act to read some of the direct quotes on your website <laughs> in the complaint. I was real. I mean. <laughs> horrified. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the things that you were yeah, seeing? I can, I can. Okay, I can. So, so here, let me preface it by this. The, the biggest mistake in a complex case is to be lulled in to using complex documents. What you're looking for is the visceral documents, right? You want the one-liners or the paragraph. Um, I mean, there's so, there's so many so many of them here. But let, let me just, let me try to break it down. Okay. Okay. A, a, a lawyer who's a corporate lawyer, he, he, you know, I've got him in the depot. You can tell the guy he's, he's, he's bleeding all over the, 
bleeding all over the place. And he's gone through all these documents thinking, my God, I can't even believe I was part of this. And then so I finally get him to the point I said, well, look, I've kind of held this back. Let's talk about this. You wrote this document that says if we continue doing what we're doing, we absolutely are going to hit for be, be hit for punitive damages. Right. Yeah. Okay, now why why do I want to talk about technical? Or how about another <laughs> another witness that just he's got just this blabbermouth guy, you know, and he wants to tell his friends from the military and he wants to tell his son about all these terrible things he's done. But it's come, this stuff came out. This is all third party discovery, by the way. This came out in other cases. Oh. So, uh, so I've got him and uh, I, I remember seeing this thing. Well, it was talking about Rob Ballard. <laughs> Rob Ballot and what a what a cheesy character Rob Ballot is for doing all this to this wonderful corporation and he says um, we're going to push back and he, he, he there's one line, <laughs> one line he says I can't make this up he says the, the shit's about to hit the fan you need to know that <laughs> and he says and he says if the if the lawyer find if if, if the lawyer wants to push this F the lawyer, right. F the lawyer. We're gonna, so, those, so those visceral documents, I mean, those are the ones because what you're doing is you're, it's a thousand cuts. You know, it's one afternoon. Yeah. I pro, documents of that caliber, I probably had, I probably only had about 20 of those. But when you add those 20 to all the other stuff that the jury in, intuitively can understand, interestingly enough, the, the case that I tried right before this was uh, against DuPont. DuPont, DuPont are, they're, they're thugs. Right. They are absolutely sociopathic thugs. And that's a wonderful thing. We <laughs> all want to take the depositions of sociopaths. We all want to go to trial with sociopaths. And that just worked out really well like that. And I, I, I kind of saw the trend. This, in this trial, there was a whole new set of thugs. The first trial DuPont that I had, it was like, I mean, they got ready, at least they got ready for this because they had experienced du DuPont number one, which was a totally different case. But it happened to, it happened to be in um, Spelter, West Virginia, a little town there near Parkersburg where they were poisoning an entire city, a little tiny town. But so they kind of got the rhythm of it and they brought in a whole new cast of villains. And that made it even more fun. Anytime they do that and they react to it, it just makes your case so much better. And that's, they gave me all that. I wish I could say I, yeah. I planned it all, but they, they gave it to me because why? Because it is the defense mentality. You see, these guys don't hang out with the people you hang out with. They go to country <laughs> clubs, you know, they're members of the bankers club or whatever the posh club is of the day. They do what they do, you understand. And this is important. This is not, this is not really an aside. It, it goes to exactly what we're talking about. Defense lawyers do this because there's a lot of complex reasons. And this has been focused ad nauseum, but they're, they're afraid of rejection. Okay. Yeah. They come out of school. They're the top of the class. They're, uh, you know, they've, they're magna cum laude, summa cum laude, law review, all this stuff. And, and so somebody says to them, hey, I want to pay you $150,000. And you know what? You're going to be part of, of that acceptable class here in Savannah, Georgia, or wherever it may be. Right. Yeah. We're going to make it, you're, you're part of that acceptable class. And on the other side is us, these iconoclastic you know, we, we think different. We, we don't really care whether they love us or not. That's something right. we all have, isn't it? I mean, if we really drill down, we all have that ability to say, I don't really care whether right. I'm rejected <laughs> or not. If I tell my young lawyers here, I said, man, if you can't stand in a room of a thousand people who are screaming at you about how wrong you are, if you can't take that, you're in the wrong business. <laughs> so that is, that's a reason and rolled up in there is the reason that they think differently. They don't, they think differently. Why would they, why would they give me the stuff they gave me in, in DuPont? Why, why would they do that? Because they think differently, you see. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, and I wanted to point out that some of the things that you uncovered in the documents or, you know, and had, uh, I, I think even, even DuPont, uh, when they were referring to C8, 
And, uh, and, and this is, you know, I just want our listeners to understand, I mean, we're talking about you know, the stuff that goes in cooking material that, that everybody in, the, in uh, their home uses. Uh, they refer to this, this, uh, their own chemical as the devil's piss. Uh, and, and which is why, which is why the name of the documentary was the devil we know, because once they realized they were either going to have to change the way they did things, uh, you know, or face some lawsuits or whatever, they just decided to go with the devil they knew. Uh, but one, one of the things I, I, uh, I think you had a, um, a corporate employer, maybe it was a whistleblower type where he was talking about that where they were uh, doing the, um, where they were making the Teflon, they were venting um, some of the, uh, you know, venting out into the air and they just start hearing this thump on top of their yeah. building because the birds were literally dropping out of the sky and dying on their rooftop. That's how toxic this stuff yeah, was. Yeah, it was creating nerve agent. It was right. creating a nerve agent that was even more deadly than cyanide. Of course, that was moving out into the, out in the community. Um, it's hard sometimes, uh, even as lawyers, even when we the, you know, Louis Neiser, I, I, I love the guy. He's a uh, long since passed, but he was a great cross examiner. You know, if you ever get a chance to read, to read anything about Louis Neiser, you should read it. But I remember as a young lawyer reading that uh, Louis Neiser said that if you can imagine that that corporation did A, B, and C, if you can visualize it and you could put it into the, in, into the workings of a, of a, a novel, and you could say, these are the story points in the novel. If you can do that, they probably did it. Right. Okay. So that's how we approach this case from beginning to end. We approach the case believing that the EPA, of course, had caved in. The EPA is completely, utterly dysfunctional. And so it showed up in this case. I've handled so many of these cases where I've been on the other side of the EPA or the FDA or the SEC. You know, it's 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 the same old story. So they had become corporate. They had become a corporate capture. DuPont had approached them and said, you know, Joe, you know, I know you're doing this investigation. By God, we don't want to we don't want to interfere with it. But I, by the way, when you finish here, we'd really like right. to talk to you about a job, and you're going to make ten times what you're making now. And I don't mean to influence what you're doing, Joe, but you might <laughs> want to come back and talk to us. So that's, that is the norm in every regulatory agency. So that became very important in this case because we weren't afraid of what the EPA said. You see, if I had gone in, I'd been fearful. Oh my God, the EPA was behind them for so many years and endorsed what they did. If I'd have been afraid of that and didn't anticipate where all that would go and built around the idea that I might have to try the EPA, I might have to have them on trial. Yeah. Not as a named, you know, not as, as a named defendant, but certainly in my arguments, then I would have bigger problem. And I think in that case, we did one of the one of the um, pleadings was conspiracy. Obviously, you want conspiracy in any case like that, because you're able to get in documents from other companies that may not be at the trial with you, other agencies that may not be in the trial with you. It, make, it makes it more doable for you. Right. So, but that, that's kind of the kind of thing we, we initially saw. And then we understood that um, the clinical data uh, was just ridiculous. Balot had done a wonderful job really understanding and micromanaging the clinical data to where we could bring it in and make it to where it wasn't complicated at all. We could show there's a number, okay? And the number is one part per billion. And oh, by the way, what does one part per billion mean, ladies and gentlemen of the jury? Well, it means one drop in a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool, okay? So all of a sudden, wow. the jury had something tangible. The one, one part per billion became, became our focus. It became the way that we kept coming. It was our home base. Come back to one point per billion. Come back to one point per billion. And so once you, once you figure out those trigger points, and there's always, in a complex case, you're going to have about 10 major trigger points that you want to always, they're, they're called the home base. Mm -hmm. when, when you're, when you're, you know, when a, you feel like your cross-examination isn't as powerful as you want, go back to home base. What are your trigger points? <laughs> go back to them. But you got to build them. You got to build them day one. You have to build them when you walk into that first deposition. You have to start evaluating and putting together your trigger points. Is this what y'all want to hear? I, I know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like no, it. I, 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 I know you want to talk. <laughs> I, I don't know if you want to talk about the case or the, the story so, behind the case. I don't know. I, no, I, I hope it's helpful. I, 
You know? I think it is extremely helpful. And it's just, uh, it's great to listen to a, a, you know, a trial lawyer like you who's been through so much and just hear your, hear your, uh, your thoughts. Uh, I mean, no, this is exactly why we started this program. Okay, good. Because, good, uh, because good. we wanted to talk about, we, we wanted to talk about trial strategy. We wanted to talk about how you can make a case successful and talk about that through, you know, essentially one case at a time, one successful case at a time. Yeah. Uh, although if anybody, uh, you know, we did, uh, I will say we did have uh, Tommy and Adam uh, Malone came on and talked a little bit about a case that wasn't as successful. And you can certainly learn from your not successful. Oh, case. yeah. Well, yeah, when, when, uh, you know, Tommy's such a great malpractice lawyer. If he loses a case, you know, it had to be a tough case. Right. right absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but um, but no, this is exactly uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff we uh, we we wanted to talk about. OK, I, well, then I'll I'll continue with that kind of thing if you think yeah. it's helpful. Oh, yeah. The practical stuff is great. We've actually had um, several listeners tell listeners who are lawyers tell us that they they hear stuff on the podcast, they hear ideas and they go out and try them in their next trial. So oh, good. Yeah. Good. Okay. Yes. I'll continue. Stuff. I'll continue with ideas if you want to. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, that's great. I do want to talk in this case because one thing I thought was fascinating about it was, so as you said, uh, um, um, I don't want to mispronounce his name, but Rob Billot or Billet, um, he handled a case for a, a farmer, a gentleman named Tennant, uh, who I think mm -hmm. actually passed away. He and his wife both passed away. Uh, from the poisoning that they got. Um, but then there was a class action that was brought uh, mm. on behalf of the six water districts. And um, and then they had a, what I thought was a very interesting settlement in that class yeah. action, which then allowed them to move forward with testing. Talk about that. Um, yeah, that know. was that was before I was involved, but I thought it was, I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. Um, what they, 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 Balot was so sold on the idea that his numbers were right, that his experts were correct, that the clinicals were a lie, that the clinicals were phonied up, that management had phonied up the clinicals and knew about it being phony. He, he was so sure of it. His numbers were so, were so accurate. He knew that there'd be a causative relationship with at least four different kinds of diseases because, you know, the empirical data showed it, the epidemiology for those diseases showed it. Uh, even even if you take C8 and you take it out of the analysis from a, an, a pure epidemiology analysis, there was no epidemiology analysis, but you know that the tendency of that particular type of injury would flow to that type of chemical. It's, it's a lot of guesswork, but he was right, okay? So what he said is, look, DuPont, you know, you want to make this go away? Let's, you know, let's rock and roll, man. Let's, let's have, let's pick three or four epidemiologists and let the judge pick and we'll pick one, you pick one, game on. Let's let the epidemiologist take a look and see what we find. And he said that money that you want to pay everybody, I think um, the settlement in the class was, I mean, it's $500 a person. And that really wasn't, it, that wasn't the intent of the settlement. The intent of the settlement was to be able to fund an epidemiology study, which he did. And at the end of the study, they found there were specific diseases, that there was uh, testicular cancer, there was kidney cancer, there was uh, gastrointestinal issues that were all related to exposure to C8. Now, I will tell you this, that came up a little short, but it gave us enough to, it gave me enough as a trial lawyer. It gave me, when, by the time I got involved, it gave me enough to work with. Right. But I will tell you that there's no question in my mind that there's, there's birth defects there too. That was not, that was not uh, tied up. And I'm, it's unfortunate, but I don't, there's nobody, I can't blame the epidemiologists. I think they did the best they could do. But as we watch this, you understand C8 is so ubiquitous that it's in your blood right now. I know, I saw if, that. Yeah. yeah, if you live in an area where uh, your water's contaminated, if you live near a military base, for example, where C8 is used as a fire retardant, you know, your blood is way over the levels it should be. And matter of fact, they even find C8 in the, in the livers of polar bear. Mm. <laughs> Come on, yeah. man. So wow. as a matter of fact, it was so difficult to find people that did not have the contaminant in their blood, that they had to go back to the military blood samples that were taken in the 1950s before C8 was used. And that's the only place they could make comparison because there was no C8 there. Let me tell you, it was so bad. C8 is so bad. Uh, 3M. I mean, my God, talk about, talk about a, 
a corrupt corporation. I mean, these people are like the Darth Vader of chemicals. <laughs> and so, so 3M, 3M says they, they do their studies. Monkeys start dying. Dogs right. start dying. Rats start dying. Birds start dying from the C8. And they say, somebody has the sense to say, whoa, man, this is so bad. We have to stop making the stuff. And as a matter of fact, can you imagine 3M doing this? 3M saying voluntarily before the you know before before they're prosecuted, that they're saying, "Oh, we're going to voluntarily stop making it because it's so bad." And oh, by the way, let's give this information to Dupont so they right. know not to use it too. Not so for Dupont. <laughs> 3M stops making it because they, in the the wording in one of the documents is, "We have a moral, a moral and community responsibility to take this to stop making this." It's a mandate. It's a moral mandate of sorts to stop doing it. So, so DuPont says, well, you know, we don't have any sense of morality. We're going to continue doing it. So they not only continue using it, they build, they build a new plant. Right. The new plant, whole new plant is they spend $25 million building a new plant so they can make their own toxic poison. Mm. Only in America, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. Re that is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. <laughs> uh, they also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. <laughs> our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I, I definitely need some reputation management. I, <laughs> I, I, I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, and they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. You brought up the point about the uh, the birth defects and, and one, you know, uh, sort of theme that, you know, is in the uh, in the documentary, uh, the devil we know is um, a, a, a young man named Bucky Bailey, who was whose mother worked at DuPont and worked with Teflon, and he was born uh, with one nostril. His eye was deformed, mm -hmm. and I think in 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 DuPont even did their own what they called the uh, their their plant uh, pregnancy study, where they took eight women I think who were pregnant and they uh, you know. Followed yeah, their children, yeah, I, two of which were deformed. Right, I call it the Joseph Mingley story. Here's right. what they did: they they did a study that clearly showed that rats were deformed exactly the same way that Bucky was deformed. Exactly, eye, nostril, everything was exactly the same. And they say, "Oh my God, you know this this looking bad." What we should do, <laughs> what we should do is just protect ourselves. So the way that we're going to protect ourselves is we're going to take the women offline who are working with C8. And when they, when we, when we asked the guy who made the decision to do that, which was the number three in the organization, why did you do that? You did that to protect women, didn't you? He said, no, we did that because we were afraid it was killing fetuses, not women. <laughs> huh? <laughs> so, okay. So you tell me, Look, we tried this case in one of the most conservative jurisdictions in America. I mean, have you been to have you have yep. you been there, Columbus? I, 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 I am actually there, from Dayton. I'm actually from oh, okay. Dayton, so I, uh, I know the area well. This place is so average that they actually test out new restaurants. What would average America do? Are they going to eat a pizza flambe? You know, let's start a pizza. <laughs> you know, they they test. They do all their testing in Columbus, Ohio. Now, let me say this. These are wonderful people up there. I'm not being judgmental about the people, but there is a certain mentality. I mean, look at your, I mean, my God, look, 
Well, anyway, <laughs> it's a different it's a different kind of politics. OK. Oh, yeah. And so it's a, you don't you don't just get a jury veneer. We go, well, yeah, I'll take the first 12. I mean, you're looking, you're looking 10 rows back saying, my God, I'm out of cause challenges. And you're thinking, how am I going to do this? I re, you know, it's a funny thing. I remember some of my, some of my less uh, sophisticated, uh, associate, not associates, but people I know in the business. I, I remember being elated when I got the Bartlett verdict for a very low verdict. What was it? One five or something like that. And so, um, it was like we talked about it at Mass Torch Made Perfect in Vegas. And I was so proud of that. People didn't understand why I was so proud. I was, I was so proud because we had done what the defense and all the stockbrokers and everybody in the world thought was impossible. We had gotten a verdict, period. Right. And then after that verdict was the next verdict and it got bigger and the next verdict got bigger. So we have to be realistic about, about this. We create mythology. You know, I, I, uh, I hate to see this in the, in the business because there's so many young lawyers out there with so much talent. They have so much talent. They talk to millennials better than we do. They, they, they just, they're more creative. They've run up, they've, they've come up in a video uh, world. They know how to project a story. They have all of these makings. And then we intimidate them by saying, you know, oh my God, well, I've never lost a case. You know, <laughs> I've never had a verdict for less than $10 million. So, so I thought about that after the Bartlett verdict, which was humongous just to get there. Now, you know, so by that time I was probably $12 million into the project. Right. Rolling the dice, man. That's what we do. <laughs> right. So we got to look at things differently. We need to empower younger lawyers and not, you know, this whole mythology about only, only you can do this. Only you can do No, anybody can do it. They just have to be shown the skills. Yeah. Well, it, and it takes hard work. So, you know, you got, you got to be willing to work hard and, and, and work for your clients. But I mean, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. One thing Mark is doing right now, I love he's doing a, the same thing I'm going to start doing is uh, seminars for young lawyers and talk about things that you and I are talking about right now. You know, everything from voir dire to closing arguments, to rebuttal and say, you know, borrow what you can, take what you can, make it better, adapt it to your generation mm -hmm. and make it better and make yeah. it and make it sustainable. Well, yeah. we, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I think that it was definitely something I struggled with starting out. The first, the first trial team I was ever a part of was probably four, four months into practicing. And I was, the stakes felt so high that I was mm. terrified to, to do a witness. I just, you know, I didn't want to screw it mm -hmm. up, mm -hmm. but you, the only way you learn that stuff is by doing it. You know, you, yeah. You can learn by those who've done it a lot and who've done it well, but then you've, you've eventually got to put yourself out there. And I do think it can be very um, intimidating in our field, especially um, in plaintiff's work. When you, when you hear about a lot of successful lawyers, it can be, it can be scary to think about measuring yourself up to them or trying to do what and, they and do. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, you see, look, let me, let me put in, y'all want to talk about this? I mean, I'll be yeah. glad to. Okay. Absolutely. Let me, let me put it in perspective. Um, so I come into the practice as a young lawyer, I was a prosecutor and then said, I, you know, I want to do this. And I always knew I wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer, but it was the day of what I call the cowboy lawyer. Okay. It was, you know, Joe Jamel, racehorse Haynes, uh, all these, you know, these, these characters that, that this mythology was created around them. Like they're bigger than life. Well, they weren't. Okay. They had a few good ideas. They were in a good jurisdiction. They got good verdicts. Uh, F. Lee Bailey's a dear friend of mine, for example. And he'll, he'll tell you the same thing. F. Lee Bailey wrote the foreword on the last book I wrote. It's uh, called Law. No, he wrote the foreword on uh, Law and Vengeance, I think, one of, one of the books I wrote. And, you know, as I was talking to him, he said, you know, we, he, he realizes a lot of damage is done to young lawyers with this crazy mythology that we try to create with some of these folks. Let's, let's be honest. I mean, if you're in LA, it's called the bank for God's sakes. Of course you're going to win in LA. You right. know, if you're, you know, <laughs> you know, there's certain parts around the country. And so why do we do that? Why do we do that? It's, it's just an arrogance that older lawyers have and we have to reject it. And we have to, we have to think about really 
those days of the cowboy lawyer, you know, the big drinker, womanizer, got a big, you know, big diamond rings and all, you know, you're going, what is that? Right. And at some point we had to make a transition. We had to move into, no, great trial lawyers. They're great. They're great spouses. They're great parents. They're great members of the community. What they do matters in a bigger way. Those are the people that really nowadays you ought to be looking at. It's not the guy that's bragging about, you know, I got this, that, and it's, it's not that. It's not all that. So yeah. we have to re really reevaluate how we pass that message on to younger lawyers. And I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to start a series of good, uh, one, one of the, my really dear friends and tremendous trial lawyer with this law firm, Troy Rafferty. He's gotten tons of million dollar verdicts, but, but he sees the same thing I do. This stuff can be taught. We just have to, we have to take the time to talk about like you and I have talked and as we're, as we're going through this, here's the tech, here, here's the technique. It'll work. We know it works, but we got to teach them that. And we just got to stop beating on our chest and hoping we're going to get a big headline. You yeah. Stop that, man. Gotta stop no, that. I, I mean, I think that's a great point. And I, I should mention, since you mentioned Troy Rafferty, uh, I, I did have a case down in Pensacola years ago is on autonomic dysreflexia. And, mm. and uh, I reached out to Troy. He was a huge help to me. Uh, you know, help Good. me with, uh, with some experts, help me with, you know, uh, you know, help me you know, learn about the judge. And we right. did very well yeah. in that case. So, uh, so yeah. I, I, it's a big shout out to Troy and the, the uh, great help he gave us down there. Um, but I, I, I was thinking the same thing, you know, when I first tried my, you know, first lead counsel, you know, what we'd call big case against Ford Motor Company, you know, I, at the time I was so nervous that, uh, I, I, you know, found uh, like 20 openings of the defense lawyers and mm -hmm. I read every single one of them. So I knew exactly how they were going to argue. And so I went in there and I told the jury, you know, here's what they're going to argue to you. And here's why it's not going to work, you know, and, and, and I, you know, and I thought that a lawyer, you know, a seasoned lawyer, a seasoned lawyer for a big company like Ford would get in there and say, you know, be able to change it up, be able to react to the fact that I had just called him out on what he was going to say. Right. And he, and he literally got up there and said exactly what yeah. I told the jury he was going to say. And it, yeah. it really it sort of opened my eyes. And I'm like, you know, this isn't, uh, you know, you know we, we definitely put a lot of pressure on ourselves. But, uh, you, know, you know. You know, that, that issue, um, I, I don't know whether you know, I don't, I'm not trying to pitch books right now. I really am not. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, honestly, I'm not. But uh, I started a series of books. The first one was called Lawn Disorder. The next one was called Lawn Vengeance. And then lawn addiction and I'll, I'll have this book called lawn slavery about human trafficking. It'll be done the same time next year. But in those books, I spent a lot of time trying to convey because they're fiction, you know, they're all, right. they're based on real cases. Matter of fact, lawn addiction. I, I think it's a, I think it's a really good book. It, it talks about a young lawyer that's moving through the system. Okay. Right. But it's on the opioid crisis. Yeah. And I, I think the reason the book is selling so well is because people like to see that everybody in a business has a chance. All these people, you know, youngest lawyers, female, doesn't matter what race, everybody's given a chance. And that's what we need to do. That's what, that's what I try to portray in all these books that we, uh, the last one was uh, Lawn Vengeance. It was about a hugely talented female lawyer named Gina Romano. Uh, kind of damaged good. She had some issues, but she was a great trial lawyer, you know? So uh, yeah. anyway, I think it's important that I hope y'all will talk about this on your program from time to time, because young lawyers need to get that message that it's all's good. It's all good, man. It's no, all and good. I, I, and I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, I, one thing I love why we, I love doing this podcast is, uh, it, you know, even lawyers who, uh, you know, might be getting up there in years and have had some trial experience, you can always learn from talking to other lawyers. And I, uh, you know, uh, I still consider myself young, but uh, I'm getting up there and I got some gray in my beard and I, I, I still <laughs> love talking to uh, to lawyers like you and and, uh, and and hearing how things are done because it's just so helpful and always just to, uh, you know, it's how we become better at what we do is to, is mm -hmm. to get out there and you, you keep working at it. It is. Yeah, I'm, I've been taking notes this episode like I'm in law school. I know we're, it's a podcast, but if, if we put it up on the website. Nice. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, um, let, let's, uh, I, I do want to uh, talk a little bit more about this case and then we'll let you go, Mike. But, um, but you know, since you were talking about the, the fact that, um, that, you know, this was tried in a relatively conservative venue, and I should have told everybody it was tried in the Southern District of Ohio Federal Court in Columbus, Ohio. Um, talk about how you approached, knowing that you were 
in front of a conservative jury, how you approached your, uh, you know, jury selection and, and what you were looking for. And I, you know, I know a lot of federal courts, especially down here, don't really let you do much. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, had, well, that's the first big sale. When I tell you that, you know, I've been trying cases for 37 years. This was the most talented federal trial judge I've ever been in front of. His name is Sargas. And I, I, you know, every now and then you get that, man. I mean, you know, this is a guy who is a trial lawyer himself, great experience. You know, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about anything except to get it right. He right. You know, knows evidence, can cite evidence as well as you can. You know, so you're in that dialogue right off the bat. So this judge understood that this is so complex. You can't, you know, you can't just uh, limit Vordire. And he gave us plenty of room on Vordire. Friend of mine named Gary Douglas did the voir dire. He did an outstanding job, um, but I think what he did is is what scares us all. You know, we don't want to hear all the bad stuff, but you have to thrive on the bad <clears throat> stuff, and you right. have to make them. You have to work to get the bad stuff. It's 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 pain, it's painful. <laughs> it I is. mean, I mean, I'm Gary's up there doing, and this is so typical. I mean, it, I go through this every time. I don't like to do Vordire. I know how to do Vordire. I know I've got a methodology for Vordire. But I'm sitting there listening. Gary's asking these questions like, you know, everything short of how many of you would like to strangle a lawyer today? <laughs> right. And I'm going, and, you know, my stomach is like, oh, my God, Gary, please. But what he's doing is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to get it out of the way. And that means if you got to bring in another set of potential jurors, you got to do it. But. I mean, you remember this. How about this? You remember how how tobacco? Think about tobacco. Yeah. Y'all, you know, our our law firm wrote. We started the tobacco litigation right here of all places in Pensacola, Florida. <laughs> Everybody, you know, my God, you would have thought we were a villain because people, you know, they love the freedom of being able to kill themselves with cancer. I mean, that's a right. So <laughs> jurors are just like that, and so you have to. So so there was that much. DuPont, you understand, in that whole area, they were DuPont softball team, DuPont basketball team, DuPont church fellowship. I mean, it's all that stuff. You know, they're out there spending a gazillion dollars changing the mentality of the jury. So you got to get it out of the way. And then what you have to do is you have to at least develop two themes in that voir dire. Okay. And you know what the theme is on this one is choice. Okay, my my last words to Gary. Gary, I don't care how how you make me suffer here. I will <laughs> suffer till I puke. But make sure make sure that you develop the theme of choice. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All we're asking in this case is that Miss Bartlett should have had the right to choose to drink this water or not. Simple. It's it's so simple. It's so elemental. But that's all they take away in Vordire. They're going to take away two themes. I forgot what the other theme was, but that was one of them. That, <laughs> I, that was one. Of, that was one of them that struck me. That you got to get past the. Th oh yeah, the, the 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 other one was playing fair. You know, we it, it's playing fair. It's just all we want to yeah. do is play fair. So, but so that's so Vordire in a place a conservative jurisdiction. You can't treat it any other way. I mean, you know, you got to go ahead and give them a chance to to make you to make you suffer. Now, if you're in a place like L.A. or East St. Louis, I mean, Voidire is a piece of cake. You know, give me the first 12. Yeah, right. Take them. So. Um, well, it, it really does bring up the difference between when you're in a conservative venue and you know you've got to you know, get people uh, off the jury for cause. And then when you're in a in a. Uh, let's just say more favorable venue and you really want to protect your, your jurors. Exactly. Exactly. There's a whole art to protecting and we could talk about that for 30 minutes, but uh, maybe that we can do that another time. Maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I did, I wanted to talk uh, just a little bit. So after you all, uh, you know, it, 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 this is, uh, you know, all documented in the documentary. Um, and, um, but after you all reach the settlement and I guess, uh, DuPont decides to take C8 or stop making C8, but then they, they made a new chemical called Gen X and they started a new company. <laughs> yeah. Comores. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah. so Comores, the new, the new, the new way that a big corporation gets away from their criminal conduct is they create, they do what they call channeling. 
Okay. Channeling is set up for bankruptcy. Let's move all of our bad stuff over to Commerce. Let's fund them to the tune of a billion dollars, knowing that it's going to be $10 billion to be able to get their way out of the mess they've got. But let's, let's start Commerce. Let's channel everything over there. And then we're going to have them go bankrupt and we're going to go just down the street. We're, we're not going to be part of that bankruptcy because they're, it's their fault. They're the company now. So it's a very, very specific kind of thing that you see there. And so that, that took place um, almost immediately. And then Gen X, you understand Gen X was one of those chemicals that was more dangerous than C8, so they couldn't use it. <laughs> okay. So, so now the Gen X is that, I mean, I remember they called me up to Cape Fear, North Carolina, and they said, Pap, you know, we want to talk to you about Gen X. And I'm in the room with, I'm in the room with all these dopes. And so, you know, the <laughs> local lawyer who represents the city council has never had an, you know, no original thought at all. And it's staring. I mean, there it is right there. Here's the problem you got. Now we could either, you can either have the team that understands DuPont to do this, or you can go pick some other random team and you know, that meets your political wishes. I think we might've been a little too left wing. I don't know what happened up there, but <laughs> so we're not handling the case and that's okay. We're handling right, CA right. cases all over the country. So yeah, Gen X is like, this is the throwaway. It's too dangerous. My God, we can't use this stuff. Oh man. Well, and you know, and the one thing I didn't understand, uh, so these chemicals for the most part are unregulated. I mean, there's no, yeah, well they're unregulated. Now you're getting regulations to where the threshold, the safe threshold continues to drop. But the EPA, uh, understand, uh, you know, the EPA made it a point not to ever give a, not to ever put any kind of regulatory mandate on it. Uh, EPA, you just, you don't understand. I mean, until you're face to face with these folks and you understand that they're simply a, a, an extension of corporate America. That's all they right. are, whether it's the FDA, the EPA, SEC, they're just, it's just the idea of them being a regulator is ridiculous. And you have to, you just have to hit that head on. And it's easier to do now because people are starting to kind of get that. We, we have a whole new generation of, uh, you know, my generation, the baby boomers were more followers. Oh my God, I can't, you know, what are you trying to tell me? Corporate America did something bad. No, they didn't. They're, they bring good things to light and, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So jingles, they've been, you know, grew up on chemical company jingles. <laughs> right. So Listen, we appreciate your time, and and uh, this has been fantastic. And and I just want to thank our guest. I'll remind everybody, it's been Mike Papantonio from the Levin Papantonio Law Firm down in Pensacola, Florida. You can look him up on levinlaw.com. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for your, uh, for your time. This has been great. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Great questions. Let's do it again sometime, okay? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, 
podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>